Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Marissa Franco, the author of a new book called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Dr. Franco is a best-selling author, professor, and a licensed psychologist. She's been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Scientific American, among other outlets. Dr. Franco uniquely presents research-based findings and attachment theory in a very approachable way. This is more accessible than even I read in graduate school. And radically, she is focusing on platonic friendships, taking a keen eye on how we deprioritize these kinds of friendships oftentimes in our conversations and society at large. Marissa, Thank you so much for being here with us today and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I haven't told you this yet, but I've been reading your book in preparation for this episode. And as I've been reading through it, I really mean it. This book is a radical shift in my mind, even in in my perspective of like, how do we prioritize the kinds of relationships we have in our life? And it's a pretty radical idea to, to be saying, okay, we're going to focus on this platonic piece of our life. And I've just been, you know, reading through it and thinking of Bowlby and attachment theories and all sorts of things from my own graduate education and wondering, how did you settle on these kinds of interpersonal connections in particular? Yeah. So I did not always value friendship. I was probably more more typical, I guess, in a sort of heteronormative framework, which is like Mm -hmm. romantic love matters. Romantic love, I think as a woman makes me worthy and it's the Mm -hmm. only love that counts. And uh, when I was in my young twenties, I went through some breakups and turned to my friends. I invited Mm -hmm. them to join me for this wellness group. So we would meet up, cook, meditate, do yoga, all things wellness. Mm-hmm. And it was life-changing for me. And it made me begin to question, I think, some of the beliefs that we've all grown up with, which is like, romantic love is the love that really matters. And me mm-hmm. looking around and being like, I love these people. They love me. Why doesn't that matter? Or even, right. you know, romantic love is the only love that makes me worthy as a person. And then being mm-hmm. like, well, these people make me feel really worthy too. So why doesn't that matter? And so mm-hmm. I just became so skeptical of some of the messages that I received growing up that were not measuring up to my reality. And I also think harming me, right? Because it Mm -hmm. it meant that I had all this love and connection in my life and I didn't acknowledge it as such. Mm -hmm. I pretended that I had nothing because I wasn't in a romantic relationship anymore. So I really wrote Platonic because I wanted to begin to level this hierarchy that we place on love that I think is making all of us so lonely. Mm -hmm. Marissa, I want to zoom in on that idea of the messages we might receive or the societal expectations we place on romantic, intimate love and relationships versus friendships. I can think of some own my own messages that I received growing up, but I'm curious what kinds of messages you're thinking of when when readers are are looking at your book. What what kinds of messages they kind of 
suggests that friendships are on a different level. Yeah. Well, we see it everywhere, right? Like there's a formal policy to create a romantic union with someone, mm-hmm. not one to create a platonic reunion. There's tons of mm-hmm. rights that come with that. There's so many more movies, you know, mm-hmm. fairy tales, all that that yeah. focus on these heterosexual romantic unions. Um, so many fewer on friends, even songs that we see, mm-hmm. shows that we see. And even, like, I don't know, the ways that we inquire about each other's lives are often like, how's your relationship going? Have you found the one right. yet? Instead of like, have mm-hmm. you found community yet? And then we also see it in our language, right? We'll say, if we're not romantic, oh, we're just friends, implying that mm-hmm. that's something inferior, or we're becoming more than friends, suggesting that it's a level up to go from friend to this uh, romantic partnership. And it's it's interesting because I really had to go into history in this book. History opens my mind so much about friendship because we see that, oh, the way we do this now hasn't always been true. And there was a time Mm -hmm. in history where friendships were more profound and close and intimate than um, people's relationships with their spouses. And that Mm -hmm. was true for, you know, hundreds of years. So the history really helps me understand that reality doesn't have to be like it is right now. And the term platonic actually comes from this idea of a relationship that's so profound that it transcends the physical, that there's Mm -hmm. this extra beauty and meaning that we get when the reason that we decide to stay in this friendship is because it just benefits us and makes us so happy and fills us with joy rather than because we're getting something physical out of it. Mm -hmm. There's this uh, part in your book where you're talking about without mentioning, I think at first, I don't want to spoil it. So <laughs> maybe I won't say the specific example, but I'll, I'll mention Doris Kearns Goodwin, because it reminds me of a book that she wrote about someone important and famous in our history, at least in America. And, and so you're, you're talking about this, this instance between two men and their non-romantic, but quite intimate friendship. Yep. And and there's some beauty as a man, I'm reading this and uh, I appreciate like there's so many boundaries that seem to be stripped away or not present for them that, that my gosh, when I think about those, there's this discomfort inside me. And I recognize like uh, there's a great deal of socialization into that discomfort that I'm sitting with, but also realizing, wow, it wasn't always this way. And in fact, you cite a meta-analysis, I think, that was from 2013 about friend groups and their the network shrinking over the last few decades. And I'm wondering, what do we have to explain for what's happening here? The, not only is it a radical shift to be looking at platonic friendships, but it's it seems like we're going through a radical shift of, of seeing those network reduced. It's so sad. Yeah, I think, you know, the big historical event that really harmed friendship has to do with someone in our very field, Sigmund mm-hmm. Freud mm-hmm. and Richard von Kraft Ebbing, two psychiatrists before they came and philosophized on in the way that they did. It was taboo to have sex with someone of the same sex. That was very taboo, mm-hmm. but it wasn't taboo to experience intimacy with the same sex. So it was like, don't have sex, but you can cuddle and you can mm-hmm. have pillow fights and you can share love letters and you can, you know, tie you can carve your names into trees. Like that stuff was really normal in friendship. But then what happened was happening at the time. This was like the end of the 1800s. People were moving into cities. Same-sex sexual acts were increasing. 
Richard von Krupp-Debbing, Sigmund Freud, try in an attempt to de- decrease this, you know, same-sex sexual interaction. They argued this radical idea that if you have sex with someone of the same sex, you have an entire disordered identity. And they created mm-hmm. the concept of sexual orientation as an identity. And all of a sudden, it's not just sex that now is something that you should be shamed about. It's mm-hmm. anything that might trigger this identity. So now it's like no more holding hands, no more cuddling, wow. no more writing love letters, because that might be gay. You know, we're very biased against gay people. And so mm-hmm. since then, you see from people's like journals where people are like, oh, I just love my friends so much, but is this weird? Like, is something mm-hmm. wrong with me? And specifically for men, there's this concept in this in the research called homo hysteria, which mm-hmm. is the fear of being perceived as gay, mm-hmm. which limits men's ability to even tell a friend, I love you. Sometimes even to reach out to a friend to show interest in friendship at all. Like all of the behaviors that create intimacy, sometimes men fear like, how will this come off? Will this call mm-hmm. my, my sexuality or masculinity into question? Which is why we do see that, you know, for, for queer men, for example, because they don't have that same Hysteria, queer men interacting with queer men experience a lot more freedom and in, in, in mm-hmm. intimacy with their um, same-sex friends. Mm-hmm. But there's this history of, uh, I guess, as a as a field too. Um, I'm thinking about back to the DSM as well in terms of the pathologizing of sexual orientation, but the introduction of this idea that it sounds like we we take on this pathology and then there's this great fear of being perceived one way or another. And in the process, there has been this recoil. Exactly. And, and I, I'm, I'm curious, just to go off on a little tangent here, the meta-analysis that I was referencing was 2013. So it's been, let's say, nine-ish, 10-ish years since that work was done. And social media has changed the landscape in so many ways not all good, not all bad, but I often think about the relative newness of this connectedness and this communication. And I'm curious how you see social media facilitating or damaging the friend groups we have today. Is this part of the reason they're shrinking? Yeah. So funny enough there, you know, there's this book Bowling Alone read by Robert Putnam one of the best, I think, texts about why we're so lonely. And he studies so many different things that might explain why we're so lonely. Is it, you know, women are in the workplace or we're commuting longer hours or, or is it the television? And mm-hmm. all his research finds that it started with the television, 1950s. Wow. All of a sudden, people started to spend their leisure time at home, whereas before mm-hmm. they spent their leisure around other people. And people, the the television also sort of makes us feel sluggish and lethargic Mm -hmm. and it makes it a lot harder for us to reach out to others so it started with the television and then in 2012 around the end of that meta-analysis loneliness began to spike like just increase rapidly what happened in 2012 the smartphone happened in Mm -hmm. 2012 Mm -hmm. so the, I think the link between social media and loneliness, it's very complicated because it's a tool and it depends on how we use it. And there's studies that find that if you use it to facilitate in-person connection by messaging someone and saying, let's hang out, you're actually mm-hmm. less lonely than someone who's not on it. But if you use it to replace in-person connection 
by swiping through TikTok videos all evening instead of spending time mm-hmm. with friends, you're a lot more lonely than someone who's not on it. And, you know, this, this other, other research finds that, you know, the youngest generation is the loneliness, loneliest, and they're spending less time with their friends, less FaceTime each day, at least in person mm-hmm. than any other generation before. So wow. we can use social media to connect the way it is designed is to keep us on it, which means we're mm-hmm. not using it to connect with people in person, which mm-hmm. means I overall, you know, my read of the research is that it's a net negative for connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty disturbing conclusion, potentially, especially as I think about our clinical work, too. Um, the, the the clinical work is often the focus of our podcast here, too. The clinical consult is always interested in, like, what are the applied considerations for our work with clients, those that we're, we're working with on a potentially daily basis? Yeah. And at work, I'm often thinking about know, as an example, the bi-directional effect that I see of people that are depressed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when I always, you know, say it to a client who might be new to the concept or just kind of beginning to work with them around this, that, you know, if you're feeling low, or you're feeling depressed, it can impact how much you reach out to others. Mm-hmm. Vice versa, people can sometimes lean in and want to connect with you more because they're concerned about you. But over time, what we notice is like people start to lean out. Yep. They start to kind of get this message, even though it might not be the intent that I, I need to be left alone. And so it can lead to this kind of vicious cycle of, of loneliness. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm thinking, wow, there are some pretty powerful clinical um, ramifications for both the research you're talking about and the book that you wrote in general. And I'm curious, as clinicians, even as friends, what does this mean for our engagement? How do we encourage people to, to, to try something new, to build that network? Yeah, I feel like my book is like a big CBT because <laughs> <laughs> the research just tells us that when we, like what we think is happening is not what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like in general, across the board, we find in the research that people are safer than our brain is telling us. Mm-hmm. So let me I will share, this is, I think, helpful psychoeducation for clients that, for example, when strangers interact, they tend to underestimate how liked they are by each other. When you ask them, how much do you think this person likes you? And then you actually ask that person, how much do you like them? Mm -hmm. We we tend to underestimate how liked we are. It's called the liking Mm. gap. Mm. And the more self-critical we are, the more pronounced the liking gap is, Mm -hmm. which suggests that our clients might think their critical thoughts are the truth when the research finds that this, these critical thoughts are actually greatly distorting the truth. Wow. Um, we also find that similar to what you said about depression, loneliness functions very similarly. Mm-hmm. And how likely you are to be lonely over time depends on whether you see this loneliness as stable. So let me get into mm-hmm. that, right? When people perceive their loneliness as occurring because of something internal and stable about them, like, I'm just weird. I'm just awkward. I'm just Mm -hmm. socially anxious, right? This is who I am that makes me lonely. Their loneliness is likely to increase over time. Mm -hmm. When they perceive it as something external and stable, people can't be trusted. Everybody's Mm -hmm. cruel. You know, people are evil. People are just not, people just care about themselves, right? right? That is actually 
makes people chronically lonely. It's impossible to get mm-hmm. out of being lonely if you think nobody's going to care about you at the end sure. of the day. So we want to encourage our clients to have unstable attributions, which basically means to have hope and optimism. Mm-hmm. Want them to be able to say, I'm lonely because I just moved to a new city and this is a temporary time in my life. And I trust that eventually I'll be able to find connections if I, if I try, or, you know, I'm, um, I'm lonely at this moment, but I know that if I put some effort into making friends that I will be able to find that connection over time. Like for me, writing this whole book on an attachment style and finding connection, it doesn't mean that I'm never, um, insecure (laughs) or -hmm, never lonely. mm -hmm. But what does, what it does mean is that now I have humility around Mm -hmm. those critical thoughts, right? I'm able to say, Hmm, I may be thinking they're going to reject me, but I know that that's how I think when I'm lonely, it's not necessarily true. Or maybe I think that this felt weird in my friendships and my friend is mad at me, but I also know that according to the research, assuming people like you is really important for maintaining your connection. So I'm just Mm -hmm. able to have someone, I guess, someone centered and anchored to give me wise counsel almost. Mm -hmm. And that's what I hope platonic can do for people. That's really interesting that you use that phrase, unstable attribution. So there's this quote that I I pulled out from your book as I was reading it. Anxious people are so vigilant for rejection that they register cues of it while ignoring signs of their acceptance. And I think it speaks to perhaps some of what I'm hearing you talk about. And and when I hear you talk about unstable attribution, what what has been going through my mind as I read your book is attribution biases in general. Like I I think about that example that I, I share with clients all the time of if you were to see someone trip on a sidewalk across the street from my office, you know, what would you think happened? How would you fill in the gap if you if you didn't see their legs or you didn't see the full context and you just saw that they fell on the sidewalk? You know, what what would you think happened? And that that idea of what you're getting at is is really powerful. That that ironically we're we're looking to to have more diversity of thought here of divergence, the idea that there could be potentially multiple attributions or multiple reasons for what is happening. But when we stabilize, ironically, on one, when we hold that one idea closely, we can sometimes be seeing sort of our anxiety before us. Is that right? Yeah, totally. You know, the people that are not only insecure, but are sure about how they're perceiving things. Mm-hmm. Mm, I'm worried for them. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm worried for them. Like, yeah. I don't know. I, Elliot Rogers, he was like a, one of the mass shooters and he, he published mm. this whole manifesto. He shot like people on his campus because women were rejecting him and, mm-hmm. you know, treated him like he was inferior. And you just see that his perception of the world is so skewed to the extent that in his world, it's justified to kill people because everybody is rejecting him all the time and seeing him as scum and seeing him as inferior and, you know, judging him and being hostile toward him when, I mean, I I don't imagine that that's what's going on. I imagine that people are probably just going about their own lives and he's not, Mm -hmm. you know, he's not really making any efforts to, to connect. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to put yourself out there to connect. So, so yeah, I think that's what we see the the external stable attribution, the sense that the world is cruel, people can't be trusted, people are out to get you. That's actually what predicts violence towards others. Mm, That's when loneliness turns into violence. 
So mm-hmm. it's just really, it's really, really important for our, our clients to know the importance of unstable attributions, which is really the importance of something we've all learned, which is like mm-hmm. instilling hope. Like, mm-hmm. hey, I've seen people come in here very lonely and be able to find connection. And mm-hmm. a lot of people have gone through this loneliness and it's not just you. And you may think everyone has your friend, but we know like from the statistics that actually it's more typical for people to be lonely than to have mm-hmm. friends. And they might just be waiting for you to initiate, right? Instilling that hope is so important to motivate our clients to form those connections. Oh, I think that's such a helpful reminder for me in my clinical practice too, that installation of hope being so important. And sometimes I can overlook being able to, to hold that space and that hope with a client, even when they're finding it difficult to find it themselves. Mm-hmm. You brought up a word there, initiation, and it got me thinking. I've had a number of clients over the years who talk to me and they say, Sam, you know, I'm always the initiator. I'm exhausted being the initiator. I've, I plan events and I invite people to come to things and, you know, they come and we, we have a good time, but then nothing, nothing happens next. I'm exhausted. And basically what it seems like they're getting at is I want reciprocity and I keep trying to initiate that contact and that connection. And yet, oh, I'm I'm not finding it. And oftentimes when I'm working with clients, I try to work that into a bit of a reframe as a skill. Like not everybody has the ability to be such a great organizer. That's not a skill that everybody has. Sure. Not everyone can think up ideas. And I and invite others to be a, a group outing or something like that. And I'm curious, how do you see this, this process as an example, but even more broadly, the, the process of attachment in these interpersonal dynamics? Mm. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a really interesting point about, um, so initiation and attachment styles. So I talk about in the book, something that's really, really important, which is mutuality, which is Mm. the idea of we're thinking about another's needs and we're thinking about our own needs and we're trying to find a way to balance both things. So Mm -hmm. what we see in insecurely attached people, avoidant people, they kind of, I call them like low effort, low reward when it comes to connections, they're not Mm -hmm. trying and they're not Mm -hmm. happy (laughs) at (laughs) at their level of connection. Uh at mm-hmm. the same time. So they're not engaged in mutuality because they're just mm-hmm. literally putting all the, they're expecting everyone else to do it. I mean, they're mm-hmm. not, they're less likely to initiate friendships, more likely to end them, more likely to ghost. And then we have the anxious people who are high effort when it comes to connection, low reward. Mm-hmm. Because with anxious people, anxious people struggle with sometimes making demands and not requests. Mm-hmm. So um there's not necessarily this mutuality in that, okay, if I'm engaged in mutuality and let's say my friend just got, had a baby and I don't have a baby, right? Then mm-hmm. understanding what her life circumstance is, I might be like, okay, this period of time, I may be the one initiating, right? Because that's what her circumstance is. Um, but the secure person is able to say, what are your needs? What are my needs? How do we work somewhere in between? Right. And so they're able to give grace, but also when, when they feel like they're sort of fed up, they're able to say something without attacking the other person. So something even like, I've said this before, like, Hey, our friendship's so important to me. And I really 
value when you reach out. And I've noticed I've been the first person to initiate our few interactions. Like it would make me feel so loved if you were willing to mm-hmm. do more of that. Would you be open mm-hmm. to that? You know, mm-hmm. um, not an attack in a request right. and giving the other person the chance to say something in response. But I think more generally, I, a strategy that I use with my friends that aren't the best initiators, put a regular time in the calendar. Nobody mm-hmm. has to initiate. It's already there. Every mm-hmm. other week we're going to dinner together. It's yeah. in the calendar. We're going to meet up at this place, right? And then the relationship is just going to be able to continue. No one has to take on the logistical burden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Marissa, in your, your response there, I almost hear um, echoes of Gottman's, that John and Julie Gottman's work around this concept of like the gentle startup in romantic relationships, almost an analogy to it within platonic relationships. The idea yes. of like, I feel when... I need. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and then I hear that a little bit as you're talking through it of like that gentle startup can be really helpful for expressing your need, but also the strength in that, that there's an opportunity to be had here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really like that you said that because I think generally I'm interested in disrupting this compartmentalization we have of intimacy Mm -hmm. like platonic Mm -hmm. intimacy looks like this you never bring up problems it's positive vibes only right Right. and and you don't have to put any effort into the relationship and romantic Mm -hmm. intimacy looks like i take you out on dates and we work through conflict together and we understand that it's going to get hard and we're going to try to work Mm -hmm. through it no intimacy is intimacy everything Mm -hmm. you have to do to keep your marriage healthy you have to do to keep your friendship healthy you have to work through issues. You have to show affection. You have to make people feel special. You have to find vulnerability, right? And mm-hmm. and that, you know, conflict and friendship is a whole issue. People would rather just ghost on their friends than bring up right. an issue or a problem. But if we understand intimacy is intimacy, platonic intimacy requires us to practice these same set of skills. They're transferable, which makes it even mm-hmm. easier, right? Um, then we can we can help our clients understand that friendship is an investment and it's not something that happens organically in adulthood. It's something you have to initiate for and try to find and Mm -hmm. put effort into. Mm -hmm. And again, I go back to this word. I'm going to, I'm going to be thinking to myself, did I overuse the word radical, but it feels radical again. Let's, let's not have this barrier. Even when we think about what the treatment approach looks like between romantic, intimate, couples, if we're just talking about the monogamous for a moment, you know, and, and friendships that, that the skills therein are very transferable. Again, I think of it as a pretty radical idea. Um, There's, there's something too, that I think your book is, is highlighting. And I think as a field historically, you know, maybe your, your perspective or impression is different, but it's felt like a diagnosis is, is like a stamp for better and for worse, but it feels like a stamp. Like this is this thing and and it may not be changing. Or even if it changes, you're forever going to be living with this stamp. And it, it's been a pretty toxic thing whenever we've been working with clients, when it's felt like, well, you know, I went to the ER and they diagnosed me with bipolar and it's now kind of felt like that's that's forever in their mind. There's something in your book, though, that you seem to be presenting, I think, in a pretty radical way, too, which is around attachment styles and the idea that maybe they change over time. And I really was curious to to hear more about what you're seeing happening or what that means to you. 
Oof. Yes. I love this point because mm-hmm. when I talk about attachment styles and how securely attached people tend to have better friendships, mm-hmm. some people are angry at me. Uh-huh. They're just like, well, good for those people with healthy relationships. And I guess I'm just doomed. And uh-huh. that's why I love the point that you made, because mm-hmm. absolutely not. You're not mm-hmm. doomed. And in fact, I'm sharing this information for the opposite. Right. You know, I, I cite some research in the book that our attachment in some studies are more likely to change over time than it is to stay the same. Mm-hmm. And that if we understand our attachment style, one study actually found that that is linked to developing more secure attachment, just knowing about these patterns. Mm-hmm. And we, if we don't understand attachment style, right, then insecurely attached people often put the problem out into the world. They're making mm-hmm. that external stable attribution. Anxious people, people are just going to reject you. People are going to mm-hmm. abandon you, right? Avoided people, people can't be trusted. People are going mm-hmm. to take advantage of you, right? And if you don't understand yourself and your own attachment, then there's no agency for change because the problem is all out in the world. But if you understand Mm -hmm. how your own behavior can interplay with some of these outcomes, you can change your behavior and you Mm -hmm. can find the intimacy that you're looking for. You have agency now, you have Mm -hmm. power now. And to me, that is so, so valuable to understand like, you know, this is your guidebook as to how you can find the connections that you're looking for. And in fact, this is my way of saying you're not stuck. Like you can Mm -hmm. find a different way out because the problem isn't just this static problem outside of you that you have no control over and that you can, you can find those connections that you really want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you kind of explaining that for people too, both in the book and here today. I, I'm I'm struck by this, uh, I think, three-columned assessment that you have early on in the book that helps readers kind of self-assess where they might be, whether that's secure, you know, insecure or avoidant or anxious, you know. And and I'm 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 hearing as you talk through it, but also thinking about my own life. Wow, things have changed substantially, both in my romantic relationships, in my platonic friendships. Things have changed substantially about how I relate to people over time. And this hasn't felt fixed, albeit in the moment. Sometimes it's felt that way. Like, oh my gosh, there's nothing that I can do to change this. And yet, I think there's something really powerful in your book about this idea of change. And there is some hope back to that installation of hope that's that's embedded in your book. And so I really, really thank you for including that part and really emphasizing that in it as well. I want to zoom out though, uh, beyond the individual to talk about the societal and perhaps even some identity-based dynamics that might impact some of what we've been talking about. There are, there are various ways that we were talking about earlier that we sort of talk about friendships or we limit the, the greatness of friendships, the level that they can reach something more than friendship. Uh, and it makes me think about even concepts like uh, in the business world, especially, well, that person is self-made. They, they, they have made that success and uh, it's, it's an attribution to them versus maybe a term like community made. The the efforts that they've made are a product of not just them, but the community in which they are from and a part of currently. And 
it makes me think that there are some really significant social factors at large, societal factors at large, that are impacting our ability to, to have greater security, to have greater friendships. And it makes me wonder what, take, what it takes to, to, to change some of these dynamics. How do we build new norms and expectations? How do we go back to that time that I'm not going to specify because I don't want to uh, uh, ruin the, the surprise moment? How do we go back to some of those aspects, even though there certainly were plenty of oppressive and toxic things back then too? You know, yeah. How do we find that friendship again? Oh, this is such a good question because like, a capitalistic society is driven by money and mm-hmm. work and it's not driven by connection and it's radical, you know, for me wanting to, as I have more success, turn that into a privilege of centering my connections more than my work, mm-hmm. wanting that to be at the center of my life. Right. Cause you know, we think about it in our society, it's like, I can say I have to cancel at you to stay longer at work, but I can't say I have to mm-hmm. cancel at work to take care of my friend who really, you know, needs some support right now. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. I don't know. And we don't question these, these norms when at the end of the day, like connection is what we need the most more Mm -hmm. than anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And our, as a society, we don't value and encourage it. I mean, even Mm -hmm. in the UK and Japan, now they have prime minister of loneliness to help address this problem even during. Yeah. And even during COVID, right. There's obviously Mm. a lot of effort being put into, you know, finding a vaccine, which is necessary. But what effort was there to making people feel less lonely, even though we mm. know that when we're lonely, it lowers our immune system and that other studies yeah. have found that lonely people were more likely to break the rules because, mm-hmm. you know, you have let you can't regulate yourself as well when you're lonely. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't any effort to defining that connection. The classes we give to, to kids focus on math and science mm-hmm. and they don't focus on building relationships. Like I would love to see a socio-emotional curriculum embedded into all of our schools, I think that would be a long-term, an amazing long-term investment for all of us. So Mm -hmm. there's this way that it just feels like we're on our own, you know, like society structures, they're not helping guide us toward connection. Platonic, I even see it as, you know, the, we're all swimming in this river that's pulling us towards loneliness and you can Mm. swim against those tides. And I will tell you how to swim against those tides, but Mm -hmm. I wish the river, the current was going in the opposite direction. I really, Mm -hmm. really do. And I think it's, it's helpful to say that because Mm -hmm. I want people that are lonely to know that this isn't a personal failing to know that you're more, you're the more typical person, the lonely person, mm-hmm. rather than the connected person in the society in which we live. I mm-hmm. want that person to know that our culture and you know the way we use technology and our culture of homophobia and our culture of racism, right? There's so many ways that we, that throughout our history, disconnection has been encouraged and we are all products of that as well. And so it's not, it's not your fault that you're lonely right. in this society, but I hope that you can still feel empowered to find connection. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I appreciate the, the, the compassion that's embedded in there. And it's also an invitation to like, yeah, if the stream is, is going opposite where you'd like to be, it is, it, it is exhausting. It is challenging and it's still going to require your active engagement exactly. to make some change. You got to swim. You got to swim. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So, so switching gears, but on, on the identity piece, uh, you know, I've say this occasionally on, on podcast episodes when it's relevant in my clinical practice, I see, oh, probably at this point, 90% plus male identified clients. And throughout much of your book, I've been thinking about my own lived experience, but also professional experiences with men as a man. And uh, I'm thinking about, you know, er, parents that are men uh, early in their their role as a father um, and all sorts of men across, whether they be single, in romantic relationships, connected with friends or not. And how that that feeling of loneliness has been so pervasive across so many of the men that I work with. And I was kind of wondering a little bit about, you know, the socialization processes and and what the research and what your your kind of thoughts would be about what's happening here with gender socialization and that friendship network building. And just before, you know, inviting you to, to, to share about that, I was watching this uh, TV show called Welcome to Wrexham. It's a, I don't know if you've seen it, Marissa, but it's a, about a Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney buying these two TV movie celebrities, buying this football club in, in Wales. And it's a reality show, but they dedicate an entire episode just kind of randomly in the middle of the season to their friendship. I mean, it it is kind of this interesting departure from the narrative of the reality show entirely. They just kind of sit on this idea of how do men or people that identify as men connect with each other? And what is what, what does this process even look like? sports often being a, a connective piece for for people that it almost allows them gives them permission to to make those friendships i'm curious what yeah again what your research tells you and and how your book maybe approaches issues related to gender and socialization in this process of making friends yeah you know, I, this book really made me realize, and this is a generalization, but how different our social worlds are based on gender. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. men are half as likely to be vulnerable in their relationships than women are and mm-hmm. drastically less lonely, less likely to ask for support. Men are also mm-hmm. more likely to have no friends than women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we see, Niobe Way, she's a professor at NYU, and she kind of describes how as kids, boys are just as vulnerable and they're just as affectionate. And then mm-hmm. around like, you know, fifth, fourth or fifth grade, they start to internalize these masculine norms and things really begin to change. So it's not that men don't need affection. It's not that they don't mm-hmm. need vulnerability just as much. It's just that they, and I, I used to, I used to say, like, I think men's friendships issues are vulnerability issues. Like they're mm-hmm. just less likely to share what's really going on and to share their struggles. But I think what's underneath the vulnerability issue is a safety issue. Like a lot of the times men have felt that when I have shared this thing, I have been judged. There has been hostility. I've been called weak. And I've never forgotten that, even if it happened in high school, right? And I still carry that same assumption that if I do this now, um, someone will, will judge me or act with hostility toward me. And so it's a way to feel safe sometimes to be so invulnerable, but it just has mm-hmm. these grave, grave costs 
to your feelings of connectedness. And in fact, like one study looked at 106 factors that prevent against depression and having Mm -hmm. someone to confide in was the biggest preventer. So grave costs for our mental health of men, grave costs for feelings of connection with men among Mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The word policing comes to my mind when you talk about that. There's like the, the policing that happens And then as we're socialized, as I think about my own lived experience, socialized as a man, there's the self-policing that then Mm. happens. And and Marissa, what it makes me think about too is this idea that I'm often working with clients around is, you know, what was effective then? Let's say examine it again. Yep. How is it? How is it more or less effective today? Yep. Because it could have been really, really effective then. And I also think about when we think about, um, our LGBTQ folks out there too, who might be listening to this podcast and thinking, yeah, it was, it was pretty damn safe. And it was about safety to conform or to think about what I, what do I share and what kind of vulnerability gets shared with others. And yet, what do we do now with our networks now? How do we engage with those in ways that might be safe today? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think, you know, if you are able to take the risk of vulnerability and next time you hang mm-hmm. out with your guy friend, share something that you're struggling with, mm. the outcome's probably going to be different than it was in high school. And again, it's a risk. Right. So maybe it won't be right. But mm-hmm. well, one thing I suggest to men, you know, or for, for therapists working with men is like, you have to tell them to go first because mm-hmm. they can't just because this is the status quo, if the men are just waiting around and hoping that one of their friends starts being the vulnerable one, right? It's probably not going to happen. And when I ask men, what would it take for you to be vulnerable? A lot of the times they Mm -hmm. say, if they were vulnerable first, then I would be vulnerable. (laughs) Uh (laughs) So you got to go first and it's a risk, but it's the rewards, potential reward is great. Yeah. Well, Marissa, I am so grateful that you took the time today to share your expertise and more about your book and and just to talk about friendships. I feel like I don't talk about it enough. And heck, that's why you wrote a book about it, I'm guessing, is because we don't talk about it enough. And and so thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Marissa, where can people learn more about your work and maybe follow you and, and get your book? Yeah, so my book is called Platonic how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends available everywhere books are sold. Hopefully it helps you and or your clients. Uh, I also share tips on friendship research back tips on my Instagram at D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. That's at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. On my website, drmarissagfranco.com, I have a survey that assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend. Mm gives you suggestions on how to improve. And you can also reach out there for speaking engagements on how to connect and how to find belonging in the workplace or out of it. Awesome. Well, Marissa, thank you so much again. I am definitely including your book in my list of recommendations for folks I work with. So thank thank you you. for helping um, us all get this, this important topic a little bit more. I'm Dr. Samuel Lescarton, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. Mm-hmm.